0: Welcome to Square Mile, I'm Joel Shupak. There's a plot of land here in Portland, Oregon that was once home to over 40,000 people and now has only one resident. It's a strange out of the way place that many Portlanders have probably never been. To the north is the Columbia River, to the west, Smith Lake, to the east the I-5 freeway and to the south, the Columbia Slough, a slow moving swampy offshoot of the river. Today, most of the space is taken up by a golf course and a racetrack. I'll be jumping around in time a bit to tell the story. We'll start in the present day at the golf course.
1: Okay, Scotty, let it out.
0: Heron Lakes Golf Course, Portland, Let's Oregon, present day.
1: the whole $3 a buck and a half
0: It's a modest golf course on a chilly day. Summer has come and gone but there are still small pink roses on the bushes outside the clubhouse. Inside the clubhouse, older white men order sausage sandwiches for $5.75 and cans of beer. I try to count all the mustaches, but lose track. No one is drinking wine. The parking lot is far from full, and the cars that are here don't embarrass my older hatchback. If golfers can be normal people, this is where they come to golf.
2: Ah, get over Right trap. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'm not here to golf.
2: Do you know what used to be here? Mm-hmm. Pretty much just swamp land, I think.
0: I'm here because um, of what this land used to be. You probably know. I'm here because of Vanport. Vanport, is it, does the word Vanport mean anything to you? No. Huh. Just follow the cart path and then when you get, you see where the sand trap is way down there? Sir. That's the eighth green, and then right in the... The fairway of the eighth oh, hole is at the edge of the course. If you look in one direction, you see the close-mowed, tended grass of the golf course. Look the other way, and you'll see unwatered fields, stands of bleacher seats, and the smooth-paved straightaway of a racetrack, the Portland International Raceway.
1: I'll look. Yeah, come on Andy. Okay. You have to pull that screen shut. Okay.
0: This is where Terry Johnson has lived for almost 30 years. The golfers had nothing to say about Vanport, but I knew that Terry would. From the porch of her mobile home, you can see the grandstands where people come to watch drag races. Terry is the caretaker of the raceway. Her official job is to keep an eye on the property, make sure gates are locked, and that everyone goes home after the races.
1: I've been called the kick out lady. Amongst other names, probably.
0: But she does another sort of caretaking as well. Behind her house, in a locked shed, is a trunk that I'm hoping she'll show me. First, we make small talk, and she gives me the animal report.
1: Here was two beavers. One scampered into the pond, and the other one had a mouthful of uh, twigs.
0: When she isn't kicking out race enthusiasts... Terry spends most of her time driving around in her truck with an eye out for wildlife.
1: So you may see me at one in the morning looking for coyotes, which we had seven babies here this past winter. Seven babies and mama.
0: And when she isn't doing that, she's searching for more things to put into that trunk that I'm here to see. Eventually, we walk out the back door, past a few stray cats that she's adopted, and into the shed. want me to pull
1: it out? Maybe. Okay.
0: It's pretty heavy. It is heavy. Oh my
1: goodness. Wow. This is a pretty popular one that people like to see as my race car. Wow. Being as I live at the racetrack, you know, and he's missing the wheel. But...
0: The trunk is full of old housewares, toys, glass jars, bottles.
1: Doorknobs, toilet handles. Fingernail polish.
0: All of them found on the property of the Raceway. Artifacts of everyday life. That's the first one you found? Yeah,
1: that was the first thing I saw. Laying on the dirt like this.
0: She began finding things like this the first winter she lived here.
1: I knew immediately that they came from from Vanport. They came from the flood. Yeah. After all those years.
0: Vanport, Oregon. August 12th, 1943. The paint had barely dried on the buildings. They were all gray. Everything was painted gray. Even the city buses. But the city was finally built. The country was totally consumed with the fighting of the Second World War. But still, there was time for a celebration. Imagine this one. A grand opening for an entirely new city. What a strange thing. Streamers and banners and hoopla. Crowds of new residents came to watch violinist Abe Berkovitz and his orchestra, and to walk the freshly paved streets. And on the big screen was Errol Flynn, starring in Edge of Darkness.
3: Simple little people turned to giants by their imperishable love for freedom.
2: Karen, of where to fight, it must be like steel. It takes
0: a lot to build a city out of nothing. In this case, 5,000 workers and just under a year, not to mention six million square feet of plywood, 37 tons of nails, and 10 million square feet of furtex—whatever that is. The city was also 15 feet below the level of the nearby river, so dikes had to be built. The project was conceived by Henry Kaiser and paid for by the federal government. Kaiser was an industrialist whose shipyards turned out thousands of ships for the war effort — aircraft carriers,
2: liberty ships, tankers.
0: When he set up operations near Portland, he needed tens of thousands of workers to build his ships.
2: We were coming out of the Depression, and here were jobs.
0: That's historian James Stanley Harrison, professor at Portland
2: Community College. And so people moved thousands of miles in order to get a job, but specifically to get a job that would help to win the war. Many of these workers came from the South.
3: There was opportunities up here that were not available in the
0: South. This is O.B. Hill. His family moved all the way from Birmingham, Alabama, so that his dad could work in the shipyards. Now O.B. is the kind of 75-year-old man that makes you feel his bicep. Feel that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And it feels pretty good. Well, yeah. Kaiser got the workforce he needed. And because so many men were overseas, almost a third of his shipbuilders were women but there wasn't nearly enough housing for all the people, especially the ones that weren't white.
3: Interesting thing about our family, we come from two distinct populations. Uh, One population of people who were brought here and forced to work as slaves. And then there was the indigenous side of people who were already here. Portland was not a welcoming
0: place for blacks or Native Americans. Exclusionary laws and racist ideas kept people like O.B. and his family out of most neighborhoods. So Kaiser built his own city where any of his workers could live, regardless of race. It was named Vanport since it sat between Vancouver, Washington and Portland. I'm pretty sure someone came up with that name in about 10 minutes. Although the few thousand blacks that did move in were welcome, the town was definitely segregated.
2: The housing authority, by the way, denied publicly that there was discrimination. But if you read their meeting notes, um, it says that there was. The apartments quickly filled and
0: became home to 42,000 people.
2: The import had citizens from all 48 states, and they were all strangers. This wartime experiment was the second
0: largest city in Oregon. The town was laid out with the sort of wartime efficiency you might expect. The apartments were built on simple wooden foundations, and they were practically all the same, with identical furniture. Vanport even had a user's manual, the Vanport Resident Handbook. One section describes the peculiar ovens that all the kitchens had. They were portable oven boxes that you'd place above a hot plate to use. A quote from the handbook. Your stove is a different type of equipment than you previously have used. It, however, can produce for you a fine meal. There were schools for the children, 24-hour daycare, fire department, cafeteria, hospital, even a volleyball court on a man-made beach. All the sand had to be trucked in.
2: Um, Other amenities, there was a police station with a small jail, mostly for um, those who were inebriated, and there was a theater. Of course there was a movie theater. It was actually the last structure to be built. And it
0: ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The shipyards ran all night on three shifts, so who knows when someone might want to catch a movie.
2: It was a 24-hour city. Any hour of the day, you'd find people walking.
0: Even the schools had two shifts, with half the students starting class well before sunup. It was a mass-produced town with a singular purpose, best summed up by the name of the main street, Victory Boulevard.
1: cups, cups, saucers, more fingernail polish. Every bottle I found has been bright red. It's amazing, after all these years, that this stuff is still intact.
0: Back at Terry's house, she shows me one of her uh, favorite discoveries.
1: A a glass candle holder, a star-shaped glass candle holder.
0: She was out wandering around with her standard archaeology kit.
1: Longest screwdriver I could find, a shovel for gardening, and a pair of rubber gloves and a bucket.
0: She dug the screwdriver deep into the earth.
1: And I hear something with, deep, really deep into the ground. Okay, and it's starting to get dusk and a little more dusker. And, and so I looked up, and here's a garter snake, eye to eye. <laughs> and his tongue's going in and out. And I said, I hate snakes with a passion, but I know I have something in this dirt. So I said, well, just keep digging. And when I got it out, it was muddy, of course. When
0: she washed it off, she realized it looked very familiar.
1: It's an identical, identical piece. When
0: her grandmother passed away, Terry inherited a box. And in that box was the same candle holder.
1: And there's the other one, but I can't tell which is which because they're identical. Identical, yeah.
0: Now they're displayed side by side in her china cabinet.
1: Look, they're both the same.
0: Vanport, Oregon, May 29th, 1948. the rain had finally stopped. After days of a heavy downpour, there was a break. It was a warm spring, unusually warm, worrisomely warm. And it had been a long, hard winter. The nearby mountains were covered deeply in snow, almost twice what was typical. And now that snow was melting all at once, melting into rivulets and reels and alpine streams, melting into small rivers that joined larger rivers that eventually emptied into the Columbia River, which was rising faster than anyone could remember. Five years had passed since Vanport opened, and much had changed.
2: As the war began to wind down, shipbuilding began to decrease, and therefore people um, lost their jobs and moved out. Back to South Dakota or Minnesota or Arkansas,
0: or they moved down to Portland proper, and found other work. Now there were 18,000
2: Vanporters. Almost a quarter of them were black. And mostly because of the inability of many blacks to find housing in Portland.
0: Vanport had black police officers and public school teachers at a time when that was unheard of in Portland. And new groups moved in. Hundreds of Japanese Americans, who had lost everything when they were sent to internment camps, settled in Vanport after the war had ended and returning veterans flocked to town to attend the newly opened Vanport College. It was a city that had outlived its original purpose, but lived on just the same. And now on Memorial Day weekend, Vanporters folded up their umbrellas and stood on the dikes to watch. Because the rain had stopped, but the river continued to rise. The next morning was Sunday.
3: Usually on Sundays, were able to go to the movies. And we were out there sort of pouting because Mama said, no, you're not going to go to the movie today.
0: For several days, the Housing Authority of Portland and the Army Corps of Engineers had been monitoring the level of the river. People were starting to worry. But early that Sunday morning, officials from the Housing Authority came to every apartment in Vanport and slipped a flyer under the door. At the bottom of the flyer, in all caps, it read, Remember, dikes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. You will have time to leave. Don't get excited. Even so, the Housing Authority removed all of its files and equipment from Vanport, taking them to higher ground. At 4 p.m., all of the dikes were still holding.
3: My mother was in the process of baking this, this ham, and I can remember she had slices of pineapple on the top, and, and you could smell it, uh, the aroma all through the house.
0: But on the western edge of town was a railroad berm, not a dike. It was engineered to hold the weight of passing freight trains and had a different construction. On the other side of that berm was Smith Lake, swollen with river water.
3: My father was at home sleeping. He was sort of uh, bogged down after a night of drinking and a week of uh, working in the shipyards.
0: At 4.17 p.m., the berm failed. Water started pouring in, bringing with it the same gravel and earth that were meant to keep it out, until 500 feet of the berm collapsed completely. As soon as the breach was spotted, police officers scrambled through town on motorcycles, telling everyone to get out. First, the water filled all the sloughs and lakes and ponds. Buses became impromptu rescue vehicles, gathering passengers and driving up towards Denver Avenue to safety. One of these buses came for O.B. and his family. His mother and siblings piled in. But as for his slumbering father,
3: he did not get up as being warned and heated when we left.
0: All the sloughs had filled, and the only thing the water could do now was rise. It rose to the knees of escaping families. It covered picnic benches and mailboxes, then automobiles. Water filled the homes, rushing through doors left open in haste, seeping up through floorboards lifting hundreds of identical dining room tables and mattresses. Water filled the homes until the buildings themselves began to rise. They floated off their wooden foundations, bobbing in the floodwaters like paper boats. From the safety of Denver Avenue, you could stand and watch the floating roofs of houses crash into each other. You could hear the awful crunch and creaking of an entire city, untethered and dismantling. the flood. Most people did manage to get to safety even Obi's father.
3: When we saw him, he had this big chessy cat grin on his face, and he told my mother that ham was very good.
0: <laughs> How this man managed to wake up, eat a ham, escape a historic flood, and still have a good attitude is beyond me. But not everyone was so lucky. The official death toll was 16. Although, according to Professor Harrison, not everyone believes that number.
2: Um, Many residents think that there were many more. We don't know.
0: Rescue boats and volunteers navigated the wreckage, looking for survivors. After several weeks, the waters receded enough that residents were able to return to their ruined homes to see if anything was left. Just finding the building itself was hard enough. But remarkably, some folks did find photo albums or winter coats or family heirlooms that were undamaged. Anything belonging to the city that was salvageable
2: was auctioned off. The, um, the buildings that were left were piled together and burned and, um, and that was about the end of it.
0: Vanport was never rebuilt. Until they found new places to live the survivors stayed in makeshift shelters and churches or school gymnasiums or they were taken in by Portland families and donations came from all over the world some from the least likely of places.
2: From Germany people were donating, from Japan, our former enemy. Think
0: about that. Not even three years after the war had ended, citizens of the countries we had fought were sending money to the survivors of a flooded town that was built just to help defeat them. Obi's family eventually settled in a housing project in Portland called St. John's Woods. That's where O.B. learned to fish, one of his great joys.
3: You get the line and I'll get the pole. Singing is another. And we'll go down to the crawled at home. Mm-hmm.
0: From everyone I've talked to, and all accounts I've come across, people who lived in Vanport remember it as a pretty special place. Professor James Harrison even talks about the Vanport
2: spirit. It's the Vanport spirit that you can do things, you learn how to do things, you learn how to work together.
0: A spirit that those who lived in Vanport carry for the rest of their lives.
2: Vanport is gone, but the spirit of Vanport is here.
0: And that might seem like a tidy way to end this story. But I honestly can't help but wonder if the reason why Vanport seems to be remembered so fondly is because anyone who can still remember living there Was a child at the time. Here's another piece that I think is really telling. Anytime there's an organized reunion of former Vanport residents, according to Professor Harrison, 90% of the folks who show up are black. Why is that? After the flood, whites could live anywhere they wanted, so they dispersed throughout the nearby cities. But black Vanporters faced the same discrimination in Portland that they did before the war. Most were confined to one section of town, over the years, that area has been neglected by the city and dismantled by urban renewal projects. And more recently, we see the disruption of gentrification. The historically black neighborhoods of Portland have been transformed to suit wealthy newcomers. When I talked to Obi Hill about this, he said he sees the Vanport flood as just the first in a series of displacements that
3: continue to this day. When you, you get down to looking at the history of black people in the state of Oregon, there's a continuous movement and displacement and re that we see happening over and over again. Black Vanporters had to stick together. Maybe that's where the spirit comes from.
0: For them, surviving the Vanport flood was just the beginning. Now this land is a golf course and a raceway and a stop for migrating birds and home to one woman with a peculiar collection. Terry takes me for a drive in her truck to a field that slopes down into Mud Slough.
1: Right in through here is where it was.
0: There's a slab of cement she wants to show me. Most of it is buried in the ground, but some patches remain above the dirt. It's the kind of thing you'd walk right by and never notice.
1: Some of this was the seating because you can see the screws that are
0: here. Look close, she tells me. Mm-hmm. You can still see holes where the seats were bolted down into the cement. I see this.
1: Yep, that's one of them. That,
0: that looks like that was one too. This is what's left of the movie theater.
1: I had a mark but people come down here and mess with everything.
0: The one that ran 24 hours a day. Where children came on Sunday mornings where exhausted shipyard workers could watch a double feature at all hours of the night. All that's left of a ready-made town that was built in a year and swallowed whole. All that's left of a great experiment, of experimental stovetop ovens, of 10 million square feet of fur techs, of the tens of thousands of people who called this place home, in a place that was once called Vanport. Produced by me, Joel Shupak. This episode was edited by Loretta Williams. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Vanport Mosaic, the Oregon Historical Society, the St. John's Public Library, and Carl Abbott. Check out my website, SquareMilePodcast.com, for links to historical photographs of Vanport, videos of survivors telling their stories, and more information. If you've been enjoying the show, do me a big favor. Tell someone else about it and write a review on iTunes. It really does help new listeners find the show. (laughs) At least that's what I hear other podcasts tell me to do. So I assume it must be true. Until next time.